You could turn to Psalm 103, where we will continue our praise, because Psalm 103 is a psalm of pure praise. It's a song that offers us a perspective from David that has no requests, no, no supplications, no laments, no questions. It's pure praise. It's purely David's heart, David's soul being revealed of where his greatest joy was, where his greatest gratitude is, and that was looking to God and seeing all that he has done for David. And I think as uh, we celebrate communion today, this is a, a wonderful psalm to prepare our hearts because when we come to the communion table, it is all about what Jesus has done for us. It's not about what we do. It's about recognizing his grace and kindness to us. And sometimes there can be the question of well, how, you know, how did someone in the Old Testament understand the gospel? How did somebody understand what God did for sinners? And I often point them to Psalm 103 and just walk through it and say, if this doesn't sound like a person who understands we are saved by grace through faith, I don't know where else you take them in the Old Testament. Because this psalm recognizes that it is all of God's work and goodness and grace to the sinner and our response of worship to him. I think we enjoy studying the psalms because they help us... um, relate to a person that's writing them, that they're coming from somebody who's wrestling in their own heart with issues. Sometimes it is a lament. Sometimes it is a crying out. But in this case, it's a celebration. It's pure joy. It's pure recognition of all the wonderful things God has done for the psalmist. And as Athanasius said in 350 AD, a man can find nothing more glorious than the psalms because in them they embrace the whole life of man, the affections of his mind and the motions of his soul. To praise and glorify God, we can select a psalm for every occasion and we'll find they were suited perfectly for us. So, not that the psalms are any more or less inspired than any other parts of the scripture, but they do offer us a glimpse into another soul as David pours out his heart in praise to God, which is why I've titled Psalm 103 for today, Pure Praise. And really it is, in my heart, a time to just prepare us for communion. To just look at this psalm, to not, as Matthew Henry warned, uh, try to exposit more than a call for devotion. Because it's an excellent psalm of praise. In other words, that famous dead Puritan was saying, uh, don't mess with it. Don't ruin it. Let it be what it is. Calling our hearts to praise our wonderful God. So follow along with me as I read Psalm 103 this morning as we prepare for communion. A psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Who pardons all your iniquities. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Who satisfies your years with good things. So that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. 
He will not always strive, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind is passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is the very words of our living God. As we go through this psalm today, and I attempt not to do more to it than let you see the devotion come forth from David's mouth, I do want to give us a few hooks to hang our thoughts on as we move through this text, because it has three movements, and maybe you picked up on it just by hearing pronouns, who's talking. The first five verses we'll look at is David personally with my soul, within me, your iniquities, your diseases, talking to his own soul, and recognizing that God has been good to him. And then maybe you noticed in verses 16 to 18 that it moved from just being personal to David to the language of us. He is now seeing that God has not just been good to him, but God is good to all his children. And then it ended with the crescendo in the heavens to the farthest extent of all creation. It went from a soloist performance to a symphony. And that symphony went all the way out to the farthest reach that we can imagine when David talks about the angels giving praise to God in the heavens. So that's where he sees God has been good to all creation, not just to his children and not to just to David, his child. This has been called by many David's Hallelujah Chorus. And it's a, a guide for our hearts today to have many reasons to bless the Lord. So let's start first with David seeing how God has been good to him. Verses 1 and 2 is that call to his own soul. And you might not have known that you just did that in that last song. Even though if I would have asked after we sang that, Behold him, Son of God, Messiah, the Lamb, the Roaring Lion, who are we singing that to? And of course we would have said, we're singing it to God. But you notice the last lyric in that, to, it called our own soul to behold him. It, it called our own soul. Be still. We're not talking to God at that moment saying, God, you be still. We're singing, soul, we need to be still and behold him. And it is kind of an interesting thing to call your soul to be still while at the same time calling forth praise from your soul. But what we learn from David in this opening section is all true worship does come from within. We bring it into the room when we arrive on a Sunday morning. We don't need a worship leader saying every week, let's go church. You know, like we're running out like the Orion Bears last night onto the field. 
There has to be something, as my coach used to tell me, Adam, I can't turn that switch on for you for this game. And likewise, with our worship, when we gather corporately, what we bring into this room is what we have to draw out of. Anything we do in here is, is an accompaniment. But it's, it's how you bring your worship into this room. Spirit-filled believer. And David is teaching us that when he talks to his own soul at first and tells his soul, praise God. I mean, that's the banner that flies over all true worship. We could, if we needed the help, put it up on a banner behind me. That's what we're here to do every week. Praise God. But praise God, as we learn from David here, we don't need a banner because it's been written on our hearts. It's deep within the soul of the true believer to be able to draw out from that which is, what did he say in verse 1? All that is within me. That's where true worship is going to originate. Within me. Not having to be conjured up outside of me. But it comes from within, which then calls into question, how do I arrive for Sunday corporate worship? Do I arrive here ready to sing praises to God because I've what? I've done what David says right here. I've blessed the Lord in my own soul before I've arrived. Uh, all that's within me, I've blessed his holy name and I've forgotten none of his benefits. Those two lines uh, complement one another. All that's within me, verse one, forget none of anything about him. So first it's a call to your own soul to say, hey, with everything I have, Everything within me, as Spurgeon said, many are our faculties, emotions, and capacities, but God gave them to us. It's to recognize my, my mind, my heart, my soul, my voice. It's all from him. And David is saying, oh soul, all that's in within me, conjure up everything you can. Spurgeon goes on to say in that quote, many are our faculties, emotions, capacities. God has given them all to us, and they ought all to join in chorus to his praise. Half-hearted, ill-conceived, unintelligent praises are not such as we should be rendering to our loving Lord. Spurgeon isn't telling you to take out a piece of paper and you know, write list all the faculties in your, in your body and everything connected and check the boxes. No, he's just saying, just think about it. All of you right now in this room is to be given over of praise to God. That's why we're here. It even brings to mind um, the passage we were in two weeks ago in Romans 6.13. Being in Christ, having union with Christ. Paul wrote, don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. I mean, that's not just a call to fighting sin. That's a call to praising God. Because he's saying it in the positive. Present yourself to God, alive from the dead, believer. And, and you, the members of your body, tongue, heart, mind, everything, those are members God has given you, body parts that are your instruments to be used for God's righteous purposes, including but not limited to coming to corporate worship on a Sunday, ready to praise him. So, as we see David's example, he calls all within him Verse 2, to forget none of what God has done. He has to think. Before I even could say it or sing it, it's got to be something I'm remembering in verse 2. Forget none of his benefits. And we get to see inside to the soul of David, what were the benefits that came to his mind when he draws 
the first circle just around himself. And so I encourage you to do the same this morning. When you take stock of worship in your life, the first circle you draw is just around you. I know we're here gathered corporately, but to properly evaluate my own heart and its readiness for worship and the benefits God has given me, follow David's example. He draws that circle just around himself and starts from verse 3, 4, and 5 to list off what are all the benefits I've received from God. First and foremost on the list, verse 3, who pardons all your iniquities. He forgives your sins. He takes away the shame. He takes away the guilt. And it begins here for the true believer. All true worship begins here. Old Testament, New Testament, wherever you look in the Bible. If you are a true worshiper of God, it's because first and foremost you've recognized your sins have been forgiven. Anything else that you would want to see and say thank you for all around you in creation, if you haven't first come to God through Christ, that's not exclusive worship to God. An atheist can watch a sunset with you and say, man, that's a really beautiful sunset. But only a Christian can say, God has pardoned my iniquities. That's the starting point of true worship for David, and it is for us. That we can recognize that the foundation, fundamental to my reason to give God praise, is my sins have been forgiven. I've been pardoned. And underline that word. That word belongs exclusively to Yahweh in the Old Testament. It's used 46 times, and it's always Yahweh is the subject showing pardon to someone else. That's his word. And who does he pardon? He pardons sinners. And how much sin can he pardon? What's the, what's the cap? All. All of them. So you this morning, you could think of any sin in your life and every sin in your life and remember them all and count them up and say all are forgiven in Jesus Christ. And if there is one that's not forgiven, then I've not been pardoned. But if you can look by the grace of God in the gospel to you in Jesus and say, I trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, then I have been pardoned. And that's the foundation of praise. Now, in, in Hebrew poetry, when you see that in verse 3, there's two different things he's highlighting in that single verse. And they're, they're a couplet. They're meant to complement. So what comes with pardon of iniquity is next David mind moves to who heals all your diseases. Who heals all your diseases? Is he talking about physical sickness or is he, as a poet would do, using imagery to, to make a spiritual point? I would argue in the context of Psalm 103, the main point he's making is that God is the one who forgives us. He shows us his love in pardoning our sins. So I believe within this verse, it's not a verse that you want to go around saying, hey, just so you know, you become a Christian, you never get sick the rest of your life. Not true. We're not promised perfect health. Now we can say, hey, I mean, I thought about it this past week. If we are to not forget any of God's benefits to us, I said, it is true. I can look at my life 42 years now and say, anytime I've gotten better, praise be to God. That was his doing. I know I took some medicine or I went to the doctor, and, but the fact that I have fully recovered is as far as I know. 
Who gets the praise for that? I mean, I know who gets the bill for it and who gets paid, but who ultimately is my healer? Every time I've had the flu, every cold, every headache, appendicitis in eighth grade, barely survived it. It was about to explode in my stomach. It was God who was kind to me. So yes, I can say, God, thank you. Whatever physical sickness I've had, that was your kindness to me and will always be. But no one goes through life never getting sick and eventually, as Paul would say, in this earthly perishable tent is not going to eventually die. So what is this sin sickness? Well, it complements pardoning iniquity by saying being healed of a disease, of the disease of our sin, is part of our sanctification process. We are being, as we grow more like Christ, separated further from sin, which means your soul sickness, that sin nature that you have that we studied in Romans 5 and 6, that's been changed and the power of sin broken over you. Now you are actually being transformed into the image of Christ. And that sin sickness that used to draw you and overpower you no longer can do that. Think of the language of 1 Peter 2.24 at this point. This is what we will celebrate today in communion. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. This is the message that David is delivering to his own soul that is conjuring himself up to praise right out of the gates. Why he can bless the Lord and all that's within me, give praise to God's name, is because God has first dealt thoroughly with David's sin. It's been removed and he has given reason to praise. Moving on to verse 4, he talks about another image of being redeemed from the pit. And crowned with loving kindness and compassion. And again, you could see in that single verse, those two ideas complement one another. When you think of somebody like uh, the life of Joseph, who literally was thrown into a pit. And then what? Eventually brought out of it. I know he had, you know, that time in jail. But then he was eventually what? Given a, a position of authority, a crowning, so to speak. This is the way God works with all sinners who have come to God in Christ. Our lives were headed for, as that word pit means, destruction or decay, disaster. And instead of that life just going off the cliff, spiritually speaking, he has pulled us out of that pit in Christ. And now he has crowned us with two wonderful words that talk about God's love for us. On that crown are two crown jewels, God's loving kindness and God's compassion. And you'll see those words uh, repeated in this psalm because those words are the heart of God's love for the sinner. First, that word he crowns with loving kindness is a wonderful word that talks about God's sovereign, covenant, loyal love. A, a superior to an inferior. Uh, someone who has no reason to love this lesser person reaches out and extends love to them and pulls them up, if you will, and then is going to be faithful with that love. It's my favorite word for love in the Old Testament. It's one of the few I can actually remember. I'm preaching at a retreat uh, this weekend over at Hickory Cove. That's why there's this uh, large group of people who are never usually sitting there, sitting there this morning. You're wondering like, what, where did all those people come from? And why are they sitting in the spot? Nobody ever sits. Clearly they're new. Thanks for coming, y'all. You look great. <laughs> I mean, they were probably up hanging out 
looking at the stars and they made it to church today. But um, I've been talking to them about, uh, they have a uh, Hebrew Jedi master as their teacher. And then here I am, just a Padawan. But I can say this, Peter, that Hesed, his, his loyal love, his loving kindness is my favorite word that I learned in Hebrew. Why? Because it embodies that love that we hear about in the New Testament. God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's what's right there in God's loving kindness. It's a love that says you didn't do anything to deserve it. But I'm still going to give it. How will you respond? Well, David responds in praise. And that word for love will be repeated three more times in Psalm 1-3. That's the heart of this psalm is recognizing the loving kindness of God. And David didn't even have the advantage we have of looking back at the cross to see that's seen in Christ. It's demonstrated in Christ. David gets it by grace through faith a thousand years before it's gonna happen. Did he know the exact methods? No. But he knew God was a loving God who could pardon sinners by his own love first extended to them. And then he, he couples it with this other word, compassion, which oftentimes is used, and you'll see this in verse 13, uh, it's, got a, it's got a relational dynamic. It's not this sovereign, covenant, loyal love from a superior to an inferior. It's a loyal, it's a compassionate love of, as it says later, a father who shows compassion to his child. It's that kind of love. It's a personal love. You could, you could reach out and touch it's used elsewhere in the Old Testament for a maternal love and a brotherly love. So those do complement each other well. One is this permanent loving kindness that God will never go back on his word. And the other one is this personal. All the greatness of that one love, it's personal to you, child of God. And you, though deserving no redemption at the bottom of the pit, are pulled out of it and instead crowned with God's love in his loving kindness and compassion. And then, in case David was worried about missing any particular aspect of a benefit of God's love to him, verse 5 summarizes, God, you satisfy with good things. It's, it's a very generic statement. He's just saying, God, like James, every good and perfect gift comes from you. And when I recognize those Years of you giving me good things, my life is, my, my, the, the, the joy and the vibrancy of my life comes back like an eagle. Why does he pick an eagle? Well, I mean, have you ever seen a bad looking bald eagle? No, they always look great. Just big wingspan, kind of fresh haircut like mine. My kids tell me, dad, when you're getting shaggy, you look old. So go get a haircut. I'm like, all right. Takes years off your life, so to speak. And, and that's kind of this, this beauty and mystery of the eagle. That it, after it molts, after it gets its new feathers in, we don't know how old it is, but it looks great. Whereas you go to the zoo, old turtles are missing their teeth. Elephants are just leaning on a rock. Even I was at the zoo two weeks ago with my son. Even the grizzly bears or whatever bears they had, they looked haggard. Their hair was falling out. No offense, none taken. The eagle... You just look at it and go, man, how does that thing continually soar? How is it so strong? I don't know. It's just the way God made it. And he's saying, God, when I look at my life and recognize all your benefits, that every good thing is from you, my heart comes alive. 
It's the language of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.16. Though the outer man might be decaying, the inner man is growing stronger day by day as we look to the strength we have in God through Christ. Now, everything I just said in Christ comes from David, who is recognizing this is the same God. That first circle he draws around himself to evoke pure praise in his soul. It's no different for you this morning, reading it 3,000 years later. Isn't that amazing? When there's, oh, what's the God of the Old Testament like versus the God of the New Testament? Can you say amen, Christian, to all the reasons to praise that David just gave? That's the similarity between the God of the Old and New. He's the same God. But the praise doesn't stop there. In fact, we're only five verses in. It's just beginning. Because David doesn't get so caught up in you know, his soul now. It's, it's moving. The engine's running. And now, perhaps in thinking about how God has been good to him, he moves in 6 to 18 to talk about how God has been good to us. All of his children. How has, how has God been particularly loving to all of his children. It's not just about what he's done for me. Can I look at anybody else around me? Can I look this morning at all of you who, who know Christ and love Christ and are living for Christ and say, I can praise God for what he's done in your life. Because I know at the, at the end of the day, the one thing we do have in common is the many things we don't is same God, same salvation, same love, that we don't deserve. And that's really the, the summation of this section, 6 to 18, is David, as, as a, a writer and an artist and a poet can do, just get caught up in a thought of how good has God been to us? And so he recalls a major moment in the history of Israel. Verse 6, he, he, he throws out kind of blanket statement coverage. Yahweh performs good things, righteous deeds, and, and judgments for all the oppressed. Any, any person who was oppressed, and now you get the language of what? The exodus, Israel being delivered from Egypt. Because then in verse 7 he says, look, he made known his ways to Moses. So you might think at this point, he's going to talk about the great deliverance of God to the Israelites Using Moses to get them out of Egypt. Because that even evoked a song of praise, I believe, in Exodus 15. The song of Moses. Horse and rider, he's thrown into the sea. Let's praise God for our salvation. Right? No. Because in verse 8, he is not quoting from the great act of deliverance and salvation. When Israel put their faith in God, followed Moses through the Red Sea, went into the wilderness. No, verse 8 comes directly from Exodus 34, 6. And where are we in the history of Israel in Exodus 34? Not Israel's greatest hits. Israel's lowest moment. Israel's moment of after being delivered by God, out of oppression, out of slavery, being delivered and freed to go worship him in the wilderness and on their way to the promised land. And Moses leaves to go and get the law and comes back down and what are the people doing? They're having a false worship service. Exodus 32, 18. Joshua says to Moses as they're coming back to the camp, I, I hear a sound, but it's not the sound of triumph or the sound of the cry of defeat. He, he tells Moses it's the sound of singing. Is there a worship service going on? 
Yeah, it was the biggest worship service in the history of Israel. We're talking hundreds of thousands of people giving praise to a calf which they had made. So David, in wanting to evoke praise in his own heart and look out and say, what has God done for us? Brings to mind not a moment of salvation deliverance for God's people. A moment of they really screwed up. But this is where they learn just how loving and faithful God is. Which is for us believers to think upon. You know, it's one thing for us to share our testimonies, which we do in baptism. Hey, this is who I was. And then God saved me. And you kind of get like the round of applause. How great is God? You were this. And then now you're this. But how many of us get that same round of applause if you go, you know, after God saved me, you know, a few years later or months later, you know, I had this moment where um, I just went off and started worshiping a cactus. And uh, I don't know why that came to mind. And like, I was really into it and I got everybody else to join me. And like, or just like, but let's be real. Like, I just got myself into the thick of sin as a Christian. As a follower of God. And now I was really at the point where I had to say, how much do I really believe that God loves me? How God is good to me in the gospel? Does he love me enough to not let me go? Well, he, he didn't let Israel go here. That was the whole point of this moment. God was furious, burning with anger. And yet uh, Moses says, but alas, they have committed a great sin. But if you will forgive their sin... And God agrees to it. He knew what he was going to do all along. And then we see in this picture in Exodus 34 where, no, God wasn't going to teach Moses and Israel in some great act display like he did through crossing the Red Sea and, and Egypt getting covered up. Moses asks to see his glory, but you know what God says? No, you can't see that. I'll let my goodness pass by you. You're going to learn something about my character what I'm really like. And then he, the same line that David quotes in Psalm 103 comes from Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness in truth. Back to Psalm 103. So in this moment of, of David recalling, how has God been good to his people? How has he been faithful? How has he shown his love? He, he quotes the moment that was the lowest in the point of Israel's history. False worship. Having a giant gathering where everybody's really into it. Man, if we would just see, without knowing anything about the golden calf part, you know, and just judge a church by its worshipers, man, we would have been sold. They are really worshiping God. That's how easily the outward could not actually say anything legitimate about the inward. Because Israel got caught up in a big old worship party, singing and dancing, and it was completely false. Might that be a word of warning to us today? The, the display on the outside better first be backed up for them the praise that comes from the inside. Whatever it looks like after that, 
So be it. We've, we've been wired all differently. But what we always have to say is, is the object of our worship that's promoting the expression of it God or is it something else? In our day and age, is it we're just worshiping for the sake of worship? Which means, you know what you're doing? You're worshiping worship. How it makes you feel, how that sound, whatever type of style it is. You get so hung up on that, you know what you're doing? Worshiping worship. Because your eyes of your heart have been taking off the object of your worship, which is God. That's who we come to worship. Back to our text, David recalls here how God has been good to us. Just like with Israel, he, he is this way all the time. Compassionate, repeats himself. Gracious, what is God being gracious? That he's kind to his children when they blow it. That hits personally to home for me. That God has a particular grace and kindness to his children when they blow it. And how does he show it? What does it say after that? He's slow to anger. It's a word that literally means he's long in the face. You know, think about that. That God's face towards his children, when we would expect to look and see anger, we do not see a, as my son once said about me. And it, it's humorous as much as it was painful at the time. When dad was angry disciplining him, and he looks at me and then looks at mom and says, Mom, why is dad's face so crunchy? And that came to mind when I was studying it this week. God's face is never that squinty or crunchy towards his children. And may it never be for me again. That, that moment was so painful to me. Because whether I'm disciplining my son for his good. Or whether we're having the greatest time together. Dad's face should never change. And God's face towards us as his children does not change. He's slow to anger. His face is not getting contorted. Why could he be compassionate and gracious and patient to us? Because at the end of verse 8, what holds it all together? He overflows. He abounds in loving kindness. That faithful, loyal love that will not change. He overflows in it. That's what holds all of these wonderful characteristics together. God is not burning quickly in anger towards us. In fact, 2 Peter 2, I mean, this is God's consistency in his character. His unchangingness in his ways. It's not just that he burns slow in his anger towards his children, even towards creation. 2 Peter 2, verse 7, talking about, the end that is coming, and those that are mocking, saying, where is this promise of God's coming? Verse 4 of 2 Peter 3. They're saying, well, oh, if he's so, if he's, he's so against sin, and he's going to punish it, and there's this wrathful judgment coming, where is he? Mocking Christians in the time Peter's writing this. So here's Peter's answer. By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. There is a judgment coming. Kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. He's talking to Christians. That with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's the loving, kind grace of God that shows up in his patience. 
And so verse 9 is an expression of that. People that are quick to anger, they do strive and they do keep their anger forever. Two different dimensions of how God can be angry with sin and hate sin and not react so quickly. He can take a long, deep breath. He's not punitive or knee-jerk in his response. Verse 9, he doesn't always strive. It's a way to say he's not always accusing. He's not always on our case. Or as we're warned as fathers, he's not exasperating. So not in the moment he's quick to anger, but also verse 9 says, nor will he keep his anger forever, as in he's not secretly keeping tabs and it's mounting up and watch out, it's coming for you, which is how we can think about God and his reactions to us. Even though he says he's forgiven our sin, he's secretly keeping tabs and it's coming. He's saying, no, he is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, is not accusatory, striving, uh, keeping tabs. And the question that would keep coming back to our hearts is, how could he be this way? What's, what's he like that he doesn't just react in the immediate to our sin? Well, verse 10 answers it. He hasn't dealt with our sins accordingly or rewarded us according to them. Because of his loving kindness towards us, because of the forgiveness of our sins, we don't get, verse 10, immediately zapped in the moment, dealt according to our sins, nor rewarded according to our iniquities, as in revenge isn't coming later from him towards his children. We have to get that gospel truth, the love of God to us in Christ, just tattooed on our hearts. I just have to know it through and through. Verse 11 or verse 10, this is not what God is doing when you sin, believer. He's not in the moment just saying, there, I've had it up to here, boom. Like he loses his cool like we can. Or rewards us, keeps a record of wrong according to our iniquities. He's saying, no, that's not what God does towards us. How could he possibly be so patient? So he gives an image in verse 11. Here's how. As high as the heavens are above the earth, and here's this word again, how great is the loving kindness God has towards those who fear him, his children. That's how he doesn't respond so quickly in the moment to us in our sin. He just thinks of what's the highest, most glorious outside of this world image you could think of, the heavens. And that's how great this loving kindness is. It's, it's infinite. As in, you can keep looking into the sky and say, where does it end? I don't know. But that's how high the love of God towards his children is. And is he sweeping sin under the rug? No, he's removing it, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west. So far as he removed our transgressions from us. David is, is a poet, is trying to get this through to his own soul and to our souls. That that's how great his loving kindness is, is that the sin that we hold on to and think about and are ashamed about as believers. He's saying, no, God is separated as far as east is from west and never the twain shall meet. You can keep going east and east and east and you'll never be going west or go west and west and never be going east. Just completely opposite directions. We need, we need reminded truths like that as Christians. Otherwise, sin gets us to feel shamed and guilty to the point we don't feel like we can come before our Father and He still loves us. That we've got to earn His love back. I was with this group yesterday and we were uh, singing the song, His Mercy is More. And we're singing it above Lake Hickory. And, you know, 
kind of a nice view. I say kind of a nice view. There's a lot of trees, but you could at least see down to the lake. And we got to the lyric, um, his sin, or our sins, there are many as mercy is more, thrown into a sea, and I was looking at the lake, without bottom or shore. And looking at the lake, I uh, was thinking, why is that such a wonderful lyric? Is it true? And then I thought of Psalm 103, 12. Why would our sins need to be thrown in a sea without bottom or shore? Because if there was a bottom, no, how, even if it's the Mariana Trench in the Pacific Ocean, eventually those sins could what? Stack up, stack up, stack up, and we see them again. And we do that to people. We say we've forgotten, but we haven't. And we could say, I've thrown them into a sea, but I know where the floor bed is. And they surface. Why do they need to be thrown into a sea without shore? Because they'll wash up. If there's a shoreline, surely our sins, God, will wash up and you'll see them again and then I'll be punished. How precious the truth of as far as the east is from the west, he's removed our sins. Or he throws our sins into a sea without bottom forever just going away, going away, going away. And no shoreline for them ever to come back up upon. That's how good the gospel is. Do you believe it? Are you in Christ today? Do you know that's what he's done with your sin? That's how, how off the charts his love is and that's how off the radar your sin is. It's gone because of Christ. And that's what gives David reason to praise. And then in verse 13, he goes personal with it. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Why can he have this fatherly compassion? Verse 14, because he knows our frame, he's mindful, we're dust. He, he, he understands us so thoroughly. As J.I. Packer says, and I love this line about God knowing us, him, him being mindful of us as dust. He goes, God's love to us is utterly realistic. That's a wonderful way to say it. When we were talking about what's it like that he knows our frame our weakness, our dustness. Packer in his book, Knowing God, in, in chapter four, talks about how precious it is that not that you know God, but that he knows you. And he writes this, there's tremendous relief in knowing that God's love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery can now disillusion God about me in the way that I'm so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to love me. There is certainly great cause for humility in the thought that God sees all the twisted things about me that my fellow humans do not see and that he sees more corruption in me than that which I see in myself. There is, however, equally great incentive to worship and love God in the thought that for some unfathomable reason. He wants me as his friend and desires to be my friend and gave his son to die for me in order to realize this purpose. So you can read verse 14 and say, isn't it good that God knows my frame? He is utterly realistic about every weak, wrong, lowly, base thing about me. 
knows it all, knows it better than I know it. But in Christ is not disappointed in me. In Christ, no less love towards me. And that love isn't meant to be license, as we talked about in Romans 6, to just care less. No, that love provokes what? Love back to him. God, you do know me in my lowest, in my worst. And yet you sent your son to die for me so that we could be reconciled. I just stopped and wrote out in my notes this week, how little we know of God yet how much fault the dust can find with its maker. And yet how much God knows of you and I, but in Christ he finds no fault in us. Isn't that painfully ironic about our relationship with God? You know, the clay talking back to the potter and finding reasons to be upset with him with how little, Job says, we know but the fringe of his garment. How little we know of God And yet, when we come to him in Christ, how much he knows of us and isn't pointing out any of our faults to shove them back in our face. Utterly realistic in his determination to love us. David goes on in verses 15 and 16 to show just in our dustness how transient we are. In order to set up a contrast with how great the Eternal love of God is to us in Christ. He says, think about your own existence. Your days are like grass. As a flower of the field, you flourish. And we know that, but I think verse 16 hits home to me a little bit differently. When the wind is passed over it, it's no more. And its place acknowledges it no longer. We kind of like to have our place acknowledged, don't we? we? We wouldn't mind people remembering us. So we, we, we put our names, you know, over at Lenore Rhine, take my kids to walk around there, and they built that nice stadium, and there's names all over it. I have no idea who they are. My kids don't. I'm sure they're happy there's a name up there, but its place acknowledges it no more. This past weekend, uh, my old high school my dad told me in the summer they got a new stadium and they were inviting all the former alumni football players back to the great South Allegheny High School Stadium. 30 years of consecutive losing seasons <laughs> of which I was a part. All four, freshman through senior year, never had a winning season. And he goes, uh, it was a couple months ago, Adam, you know, are you gonna come back? And I just said, for what? I caught one touchdown. Like, I'm going to walk through there. Hey, Ashoff, the one touchdown guy. Let's give him a monument. I mean, that was probably our high score for the whole season. Our place knows us no more. Just go back to wherever you grew up. Put on your old letterman's jacket. Get a real laugh. Your jacket knows you no more. You don't fit it. And it's our transience that we can laugh at because of the truth of verse 17. This is what's gonna last. The loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. That's the good news of the gospel. And then he says, in his righteousness to children's children. That's the promise that 
long after my kids and great-grandkids, I'm gone. My great-great-grandkids won't know I existed. No matter how many pictures I take and put in photo albums. But you know, it's going to be awesome if they know the name of Christ. And that's, that's verse 17. Your name, gone. Can you name your great-great-grandpap? Maybe. Because I know in the South, sometimes they give you that name and it kind of carries through. But honestly, perish our names. But the, his righteousness, which is to talk about the righteousness God gives us in Christ, your children's 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 long after we're gone may by the grace of God call upon his name and be saved and then you get to meet him in heaven one day and then you get to tell him I caught a touchdown once. Your great 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 grandpap. Let's go play some football. It's a blessed game. To those who keep his covenant meaning that's that's how that righteousness is passed on. There's the great covenant, the new covenant, that which is God has first loved us in Christ and we come in repentance and faith. That's how that righteousness gets passed on. And then we live it out, verse 18. We remember his precepts to do them. This is how David can look out and we can look out and rejoice in God's good love to all of his children. That is the great common denominator we have this morning, despite all the differences. Why it's wonderful to gather as a church. Because that's what we have. That's what causes us to sing with one voice. That's what causes uh, us to be hospitable, to love each other, to, to get to know each other and say, oh, yeah, we may find some common things, but the fact that we can all say the great love of God to us in Christ is high as the heavens, my sin removed as far as east from the west, doesn't matter what you brought in here from your past, if you're in Christ we have this in common. We've both been forgiven. We can build up from there. But you have to be in Christ for these promises to be true. Are you in Christ today? Can you say yes and amen to all that David said yes and amen to? All comes back to one point. Have your sins been forgiven by you trusting in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and lived a perfect life died on a cross in the sinner's place, rose again three days later, ascended to the Father, and now rules and reigns from the heavens. Do you believe with all that is within you, as David says? Do you believe in him? If you have, then these are the promises to you. But you have to come to him by faith. You have to turn from your sin to trust in him and see his goodness to you and his son. Now, 19 to 22 David goes beyond how God has been good to himself and to, to the people of God to now he says, hey, all of creation can at least acknowledge this. This is, he's been good to all. Why? Because he established his throne in the heavens. I am thankful that his sovereignty rules over all. I mean, anybody in the world can be thankful for that. Who, who do you really want in charge other than God? No matter what you believe. That's why this is for all. He's established his throne. His sovereignty rules over all. For those who will be back with us next week, we're going to start studying the book of Daniel. Know what the message of the book of Daniel is? His sovereignty rules over all. So relax. I know it's election season. His sovereignty rules over all. That's why we can relax. And everybody can rejoice in that. But how much more we as his children can rejoice in it? 
So then he moves from the sovereignty of God that rules over all things that he could think of and see. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, who serve him, doing his will. Angels, mighty in strength, hosts who serve him, who have been since he hung the morning stars, it says, have been doing one thing for thousands of years, just praising and serving God. And you read the Old Testament and you see what an angel is capable of. And yet, in all of their strength, in all of their power, you get but a few moments in the Bible of when an angel came down and took care of some business down here. Because their preoccupation, because of what God has put them in creation to do, is to just give him praise. That's why this is a psalm of pure praise. This is all they're doing, is blessing the Lord. And so verse 22 ends with, hey, all works of God, everything that echoes his praise in all of the universe, whatever stars we can now see because of super-powered uh, telescopes, bless the Lord every work of his in every place of his dominion. David has now covered the full gambit of creation from the farthest and the highest and the widest down to the smallest, his own soul. Everything is covered with the praise of God. Because that's why it's here. So what's our takeaway today? What's an implication from this psalm for us? Worship is seeing the grace of God and saying, thank you. That's it. What's worship? It's not complicated. When we recognize grace in all the myriad of ways Psalm 103 can recognize grace. It produces gratitude. We understand this as humans. We like to hear thank you from people that we have served or shown grace towards. A coach with his players, a teacher with his students, a boss with her employees, a parent with a child. It's great to hear thank you. How much more? What an understatement. But how much more for God's creation to turn around and to say thank you once in a while. That is what our worship is each and every day and for certain when we walk into this room. It's a holy, divine thank you. Jerry Bridges in his book, Transforming Grace, writes, here's a benefit of being uh, full of gratitude. He says, it's the handmaiden of contentment. Are you, un are you feeling uh, discontented in your life? Maybe you have a gratitude problem. It's not that you don't have what you want. It's that you don't recognize what you have in God. And Bridges says, an ever-growing attitude of gratitude will certainly make us more content since we'll be focusing more on what we do have than what we don't. But contentment is more than focusing on what we have. It's focusing on the fact that all we do have, we have by the grace of God. And we do not deserve anything we have. It's all by his grace. That, that's a longer way to say the truth in Psalm 8411. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Do you believe the truth of that verse, Christian? No good thing does he withhold from you who walk uprightly. So if you don't have it, it must not be a good thing that God wants you to have. That's kind of freeing, isn't it? 
When you think of all the things you want that you don't have, but if you are in Christ and believe God is your heavenly loving Father and he's everything the Bible says he is, Psalm 8411 says, if there was a good thing and he wanted me to have it, he'd give it because that's how he works. But if I don't have it, then it must not be a good thing for me to have. Doesn't mean I can't look at Vicky and see her get it and say, you know what? If he wanted me to have it, he'd have given it to me. He gave it to Vicky. Praise God. Amen. That's where contentment's found. And that's the heart of worship. Grace begetting gratitude and gratitude befitting grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for how it does reset the challenges in our own heart to worship you. As we have said this morning from Ronald's exhortation to, to let go of the distractions, and those are probably the least of our worries. A distraction we can, we can move our mind on from rather quickly, Father, but it's, it's what we love, it's what we desire that becomes the real obstacle, what we're consumed by. And we come in here this morning desperate to be consumed by you, but thankful that in your word you so clearly can point our hearts back to you. And not only that, but fill them with gratitude because all we saw this morning were reasons to praise you. And the height of those reasons is that we now come to your table to celebrate the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that our iniquities have been pardoned, our sins have been forgiven, and we have eternal life in him. So now as we prepare to receive the cup and the bread and to commemorate and celebrate what Christ said in motion in the upper room. I pray that we have examined our hearts this morning in a proper way, that there is no idol that we've put up, no golden calf in our lives that's taking our worship away from you. But we can more clearly see you and say thank you this morning to you in this ordinance because we recognize how gracious you've been to us in Christ. It's in his name I pray, amen.